Welcome to Coffee and Contemplation. I'm Robin, and today we will be discussing Chapter 5, Dig Dug. Coffee selections for today. I am drinking Caribou Coffee's Fireside, their dark roast. I was a huge fan of Caribou Coffee when I was in college. That was when I first discovered Caribou Coffee, and there was a little, there was a shop right by my college campus, and I was thinking about Caribou recently, and I decided to pick up some some of their some of their grounds from the store. So I'm very much enjoying this. I do I do enjoy a good dark roast, and I am enjoying it from my Rogue mug. I think I mentioned last season that I, I am a D&D player, and um, Rogue is my preferred class. And now that we've acquired coffee, let's proceed with contemplation. This episode opens kind of quietly with Joyce reviewing the drawings and the map that will has put put furiously together at the end of at the end of chapter four, Will the Wise. And here Will is trying to also explain what he's feeling to Mike, who jumps right into the not just problem solving mode, but also cheering up mode, where he, Mike tries to prompt the idea to Will that Will can be a spy for them, be a spy on the shadow monster as well, that it can kind of go both ways, which is not a bad observation. And in a way, it it does serve them, at least for a little while. I like that both Mike and Will are right about this, that because Will's immediate concern is, well, what if he's aware? What if he becomes aware of what I'm doing? And I got kind of Harry Potter vibes through here, specifically Order of the Phoenix, the fifth book in the series, based on the whole legilimency, occlumency stuff, where there's the fact that Harry and Voldemort are connected based on their thoughts and their mental state, and that Harry gets these glimpses, and it does serve them for a while, the same way that it serves Will, and it serves our heroes for a while, that Will can kind of spy on the Mind Flayer or the Shadow Monster, as he's still known and will be known for a long time, as I talked about last time. But I just, I love the pacing through this conversation. Not only is it really great to see Mike demonstrating this this caretaking behavior towards Will. It just feels like another moment of who Mike is at his core, getting a very honest version of Mike through this scene. And it reminds me a lot of the way that he was caretaking with Elle. It's different because Will is not Elle, they're different people, but it, it has the same quality to it. It doesn't feel like we're... <laughs> kind of like just pulling over to the side of the road to like have this philosophical moment of debate like it's you know or just to feel Will, Will's fear here we're moving the story forward so it's it's a combination of of Kevin D Ross the editor for this episode his edit and then in addition to uh, Finn Wolfhard's performance and Noah Schnapps as well just a nice moment of teamwork on on everyone's part i also got a lot of Sam and Frodo vibes in this scene which i think probably is not a hot take you know, Will being slowly taken over by the Mind Flayer, it feels very very similar to Frodo being overtaken by the ring and the, the bearing the weight of that, the responsibility of having this. And like, I don't know how much longer I can resist this. I don't know if I'm capable. The, the contexts are different. Frodo has a little bit more insight as to what he's doing. But especially like early on in like Fellowship, it's like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm kind of just doing what Gandalf told me to do. And I kind of feel like you get a little bit of that from Will here. And then to have Mike be the Sam of this, like, but we're here for you. You're really strong. Like we can, you know, we can do it. You're going to be okay. It deepens their friendship and also like deepens our curiosity about, yeah, what, 
what is happening here? When Will's like, but what if he becomes aware of what I'm doing and he spies back? And Mike is like, he won't. Will says it right when I'm thinking it. How do you know that? Mike doesn't have a way to know that, but they have to move forward as if they do. And Hopper is kind of doing very much the same thing, just kind of plundering on without much of an alternative. Without any breathing protection, (laughs) he gets close to that thing, which spits out the dust at him, knocks him back, he stumbles. And then this is, of course, (laughs) when the hole that Hopper dug reseals, trapping Hopper inside. And that's when we go into our title sequence. I was delighted to see that this episode was directed by Andrew Stanton. He's directed a lot of my favorite Pixar films. We come out of the title sequences right into Jonathan and Nancy checking into the hotel. They compare scars, and then there's this sort of romantic beat, but it slides back into awkwardness. It's not even so much that it's awkwardness, it almost just feels kind of sad. Like, yeah, remember that? That was, yeah, that was a moment, huh? Yeah, and now it's gone. Made evident by the fact that that's when she asks him what happened to us. He doesn't ask her what she means. He knows what she means. And they are able to just have this conversation. And it's not a very long scene, but, you know, Heidi said while we were watching this episode together, she said, if this scene didn't happen, she said, I'm not so sure that I would buy the cut the bullshit and just share the bed scene that happens later. Not in this episode, but eventually. And I agree with that, but I also think that, you know, we talked about it at the end of Chapter 8, The Upside Down. We, we said, I certainly remember feeling a lot of confusion about, wait a minute, she's still with Steve? You know, in that Christmas sort of epilogue. So I think that giving us as the audience an explanation, like, this is what happened. In addition to the fact that it's a nice character beat to make it very clear that these two haven't talked about this yet. And it makes sense. It's very organic to me that it's like, they're off on this mission together. It's been a lot of go, 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 taking action, leaving Hawkins. The subjects come up of what happened to them last year. And then, all right, let's go ahead and, and acknowledge the elephant in the room. They're both aware of how they how they felt. And, you know, ostensibly, how they both still feel. She says, you know, I waited. And he says, yeah, for like a month. And he actually, Jonathan's the one who brings up Steve. I'm getting the order of this. These these, <laughs> these exchanges all wrong. But she also asks, why didn't you, like, where'd you go? He says, well, Will needed me. And I also infer from that that, like, also probably Joyce as well. And that I think he needed them. He almost lost his brother. As we discussed, Joyce and Jonathan have some pretty rough interactions, particularly that argument they have in the street. I think they as a family had a lot to work through. Jonathan may or may not have the words for that, or he may not feel comfortable saying any of that. And maybe none of that happened. Maybe there really wasn't any like working through of it with Joyce. I, you know, I don't know, but I, I like to headcanon that it, that that took place and that that was important and necessary to them as a family. They needed one another. I never thought about any of that until this particular watch. And like, it makes me feel better about, I think, some of those, some of those things that got said between Jonathan and Joyce last season, because I was surprised also on this rewatch how much that scene upset me. So at the same time, while he's like, yeah, you only waited like a month. I needed more time than that. And then you went back to Steve. So what was I supposed to do from her side of it? she was dealing with the loss of her best friend. Like, as she tells Jonathan in the previous episode, I think, Will came home. Barb didn't. That's the whole reason they're on this adventure together right now. Especially since she couldn't talk to her mom 
about any of this. You know, she needed an emotional support, emotional and mental and physical needs that Jonathan couldn't meet for her. This is one of the probably the moments that I'm like the most I find the most rewarding on this like close reading rewatch because it's surprisingly dense. It's surprised there's surprisingly a lot to unpack here in the best sense. Back with Will, he wakes up suddenly. He tells Joyce that he thinks Hopper is going to die. And speaking of Hopper, he gets up and he keeps exploring after he makes himself a makeshift mask. He also pukes first, which he just goes through so much physical distress. It's just like, it's not like it doesn't make sense based on like what he's willing to just barrel, go barreling into, but still, poor guy. At Lucas's house, the Sinclairs have breakfast and uh, Lucas asks about what his parents do when they fight. His dad says that he apologizes and then gives his mother whatever it is that she wants. Even when she's wrong, Lucas asks, and his parents enjoy a, a nice hearty chuckle about how Mrs. Sinclair is never wrong. And that, that's when Lucas considers, gets up from the table and says, unconvincingly, that he's going to hang out with Justin. I don't like this scene. I, I buy it for the 80s. This feels like something that I feel like you would have seen on like an 80s sitcom, but I don't find it funny in a modern context. This feels like a really, really kind of short-sighted view of what feminism is. It's it's not feminism to just be like, the woman is always right. Any sort of relationship that's built on that is sort of like doomed to create resentment. In this case, on the man's side, I mean, especially as, as a woman, I kind of feel like I don't want to just always be considered that I'm right because it means you're not actually listening to me. It means that we're not having a conversation. It's just the, you know, yes, dear. Means that nothing I say has actually has any merit. That's not what I, it's. I mean, I can't. I guess I can't speak to every single woman, but that's certainly how it feels for me. That's a lot to say about this very quick little joke, but I don't like it. I don't think Lucas actually takes what they say seriously. I think he's like, no, I think I'm gonna go have this honest conversation with Max. And maybe there is a bit of a takeaway of like, no, Max is right. But I don't think he got, he would have, I think Lucas would have gotten there from what interaction he's already had with Max anyway. I think he already knew based on what she said last episode. I think Lucas is smart enough to also realize that yeah, Mike's behavior towards her has been really shitty, and they have been giving her mixed signals. And especially considering that, you know, she does know at least something about Eleven, and that she is clearly upset about being excluded, indicates that she would like to be included. So I don't know that we needed that joke. But again, the scene ends with him mentioning Dustin, and we cut to Dustin, who is on the phone pretending to be getting a phone call about the missing muse. And he concocts this story to put his mom, to put Mrs. Henderson at ease, who's clearly very worried and very upset. And after she leaves, Dustin prepares a trap for Dart, which is intended to, to lure him into the storm cellar. And so he armors up with look like pieces of a catcher's uniform, a hockey stick, and oven mitts before he tries to, in fact, draw Dart out of his room and into that cellar. And I thought this was fascinating because he clearly has catcher's gear and a hockey stick. So he must have tried sports at some point. I don't think we, I mean, granted the wheelers have a baseball bat, but I mean, I guess that could have been Ted's, like not Mike's. But it's just kind of interesting to me. I was like, is this just, again, one of those things we're not supposed to pay attention to? Or, you know, I don't know. Did Dustin try sports at one point? Just kind of an interesting concept. And this is a new thought. If he did, maybe that's also like a really, 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 really buried <laughs> layer <laughs> of maybe why he and Steve get along. Maybe. I don't know. But in all of this get up, Dustin runs down the hall. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my Godding the whole way, which is fantastic. I love it. And he hides in the shed 
and, you know, watching anxiously as Dart makes his way towards the cellar until he stops and moves towards the shed, clearly looking for Dustin. When Dustin, like, looks away and then looks back and then we got a bit of a jump scare with Dart, like, right outside. Scared the bejesus out of me the first time I watched this season. Yeah. We've discussed before how I don't like horror and how I am a bit of a, I'm a bit of a scaredy cat. So jump scares tend to work on me no matter how bad or obvious they're going to be. I, yeah. So Dustin takes a deep breath and runs out of the shed screaming and Dart sort of scrambles backwards looking surprised and a bit scared. And then Dustin punts Dart into the cellar with that hockey stick. Dustin slams the door shut and apologizes as Dart in turn pounds against the storm doors from inside and Dustin says, I'm sorry, you ate my cat, which like, fair. But at the same time, I was surprised that I actually feel a little bad for Dart. And I think a lot of it is how they chose to animate Dart. When he appears, you know, that jump scare, I think if you take the music out, like if it was just the sound design and not necessarily the the music it very much like especially like just the little slight way that he turns his head it has this like hey buddy you know what what you doing in there and then when dustin comes running out the movement is very much like oh oh no i'm, I'm sorry du- i think it indicates that dustin isn't actually in any danger from dart at this point but i think it's a it was a surprisingly interesting move no, no pun intended but to, you know decision to have dart not be scary in this moment. I think it's easy to read it that way if on a first watch. Like I just said, it, you know, that jump scare like worked on me. Subsequently, it's I think it's easy to see past that. And also just the fact is, Dart doesn't really know any better. Heidi actually made a really great analogy. She said, it's the same as if he brought a bear cub home. We wouldn't blame the bear necessarily for acting like a bear, you know, or any wild animal for that matter, which was actually something that she said a couple episodes ago when I asked her, you know, about Dustin bringing Dart into the house to begin with, there's a whole level of, like, safety measures that you have to go into any kind of creature, especially one that you don't know anything about. Even with most wild animals, we know a little bit about them, but, like, not a lot. And then in this case, Dustin doesn't know anything. Yeah, it was just a surprise on this rewatch to be like, I actually kind of feel bad for this little thing. Like, I don't know. And I appreciate actually that the continued presentation of this, of this, I'll go ahead and call Dart a character, isn't just the spineless monster. I like that there's, however subtle, there is this like slightly deeper level to, to Dart. At this point, we catch up with Elle who disembarks from a truck with a nice driver, surprise, surprise. And she approaches the Ives home where Becky answers the door and she tries to put Elle off and we get the... (sighs) The foreshadowing of the trick with Elle unlocking the door chain thus opens the door and demands to see Mama. And Elle approaches Terry, who is reciting the loop of words. They make eye contact, but Terry can still only say those same words. We cut back to Nancy and Jonathan, who arrive at Murray's house, bunker, whatever term you feel applies to this this living situation. And when he opens the door, he knows their names and shows them all his plans and charts and whatnot. And he starts the very disclaimery, I don't care what you think preamble, but Nancy interjects with the, your timeline's wrong and shocks him into silence. At which point that's when Jonathan says, you might want to sit down. And in when I got to this scene, I found myself thinking, Murray is, a, is another really good example of how season two does in fact diverge and deviate from the season one setup for lack of a better term, because there's no one like Murray in season one. Through Murray, you get some of this, like, 
period appropriate suspicion of the Russians, of the USSR, of the time, you get a conspiracy theorist character who, I think especially considering what is going on at Hawkins Lab, it sort of builds the world out a little bit. He's certainly not wrong about some things. He's on the right track. I also like that the that the show doesn't make it, doesn't like excuse like any and all. Like he doesn't seem to be like a, a like a avatar for all conspiracy theorists. It's just that like in these specific circumstances, he's right. And then also in terms of how do you proceed with this information, especially once you get proof, which is what happens with Nancy and Jonathan here. Murray takes the narrative, at least this one piece of the narrative, in a direction that we hadn't really seen yet. And I just, I wanted to state that for the record, Your Honor. Billy and Max, though, he he drops off Max at Palace Arcade. She goes inside and finds the Dick Dug machine is out of order. But Keith, who calls her Road Warrior, which I, I like, he says that he has an extra machine in the back, except that it isn't a machine, it's Lucas. Keith says, you'd better get me that date now, Sinclair, to which Lucas assures him that he will, which I'm sure is entirely empty. Like, Lucas has no intention of actually doing that, and he clearly never does. And Keith leaves them, but only after issuing a warning that they keep things PG in there. And Lucas prepares to tell Max the truth, asking if she accepts the risk. I'm gonna leave this one here. We'll come back to sort of this whole chunk of the story. At the buyer's house, Will finishes his drawing of where he sees this danger for Hopper happening, and Joyce and Mike find the spot on the bigger map that matches. They don't know it's a map yet. They try to puzzle out what it is, where it is, and that's when Bob shows up outside. And he's brought soup and games for Will, who he just has clearly been told is sick. And God bless Bob Newby. Joyce tries to turn him away, and does in fact, but then calls him back after his comment about how, you know, they don't call him Bob the Brain for nothing in this sequence of them, like, on the porch. It reminded me a little bit of the scene between Nancy and Steve in the garage in season one, when he was saying, like, let's go see a movie, and she was like, no, I, I need to be here for, for Mike. Just in that sense of, like, it's that's not actually what's going on, and it's not like, I don't actually want you to leave, and I don't, it's not that I don't want to spend time with you, it's just I've got this other thing that's more important and more pressing. I mean, it's not like it's uncommon to use a profile angle, but considering that they do use the profile angle in both scenes, I was like, oh, they feel kind of reminiscent of one another. But they ask Bob for his help to identify what the drawings are, and Mike says, that's the objective, find the X. And that is followed by Bob pulling Joyce aside. Will doesn't look well, you don't look well, what's going on? And it's true, Joyce looks paler here, she looks more high-strung, like last season, and I just, I, not only is Bob a great character, but I think this is an amazing just line delivery performance by Sean Astin. I mean, his question really does seem in earnest. Like, he's asking because he's concerned about them, not so much just on a surface level of how weird this all is. And it also speaks to the fact that he's not stupid. He knows something is going on and that there's there's a lot of things they're not telling him. And he's like, he's not blaming her. Like, it's just, this is weird. It's so well done. And again, it's covering a lot of ground in a very short exchange. But Bob gets sidetracked, however, like right when he's starting to really show the frustration and the confusion. And when he spots the pattern, the shape of Lover's Lake, then proceeding to realize that the drawings make up a map of Hawkins, I buy it. I buy his distraction. Like, wait a minute. Like, he suddenly puts it all together. Like, it's just, I feel like that might have been a really hard transition to make work, to like sell, but it totally works. That transition really works. And I think a lot of that is is down to, to Aston's performance. 
We swing back to Hopper, who presses on in the tunnels, trying to radio anyone else but to no avail, and he reaches an opening that he will later refer to as the, quote, graveyard, which is filled with bones and entrails and bodies of animals, and he holds his lighter up to the wall, which is moving, and it writhes away. He makes a torch and sticks it in the center of the room and tries to dig through the wall. It's... <laughs> Did I mention that it's really, really gross? It's gross. And I think sometimes we forget how gross it is. While Hopper is digging, so is Dustin, trying to reach out to anyone on their channel, repeating code red even as he cleans up the blood and mess from Dart eating Muse. And uh, Erica interrupts him. Would you please shut up? He implores that she just, that she tell Lucas code red, but she just shuts off the walkie-talkie. I, unpopular opinion, I held a bit of a grudge, <laughs> I think, for a while. Having her shut off the walkie-talkie at this point is such a deterrent to them being able to communicate and get help. Like, I understand this is what younger siblings probably do. I don't have any siblings, so I don't, I can't speak from experience, but other people have told me that this feels accurate. And I almost wonder if it's like part of it feels like we didn't need this de this delay. Feels like a little bit of like forced conflict that we that may have not have been necessary, considering that Lucas isn't at the house. Like you didn't need this interference. I don't know. Ultimately, I'm saying that I almost feel like this moment works a little too well because I didn't find it funny. I just found it frustrating. <laughs> so like definitely came around on Erica in season three. Becky and Elle talk at the kitchen table in this very emotional scene. Never, she tells her that Terry never lost hope, that, you know, never stopped believing that Elle was out there. Becky also shows Elle the bedroom. And in the bedroom, Elle says pretty when she picks up the teddy bear, which I thought was... A I, I still don't even know really how I feel about that, because that's such a callback to what she said about herself. Then in a, in a few beats here, she says a thing about this could be your, you know, your new home. It's another big part of Elle's arc in this season is figuring out that she could actually have a home. I think that's part of Elle's whole arc in the whole of the show, because I think we're probably going to see continued exploration of that in season four, just a hunch. But her using that term, deliberately using that as a parallel to where she was in the first season feels like it's, it's, it's calling back to her emotional state when she was with Mike, when she was at the Wheelers and... I don't know that that really goes anywhere or means anything beyond that, but it's just the fact that she uses that term as like a foundational thing. It's just, it's just an interesting thing to note. At that point, Becky offers to get Elle a real bed and that she could stay there, to which Elle nods and says yes. Becky then adds that the only condition for letting her help Elle, though, is that Elle has to talk to her. You know, not now, not today, but when she's ready. All of which feels very reasonable. I think it's even a healthy way to approach the situation. The lights flicker, however, even though Becky says it's just old wiring, Terry's nose is bleeding, and the channels change to a static channel, and Elle determines that not only does Terry know that Elle is there, she wants to talk. Before we can see what happens there, though, we swing back to the buyers, where they are measuring distances so that Bob can determine a scale, and he figures out the location of X. We get the impression that they've been at this for a while, that this this has been a long process for them, but it doesn't feel dragged out for us. We don't have to go through the whole experience of it. So it it moves pretty quickly. I just, it's another pa example of pacing being really well, really well executed because we get the the exasperation from the characters and also Bob feeling like I, I want to be thorough here. 
and at the Wheelers. A very distra- a distressed Karen, on the phone with a friend presumably, shouts that Ted get the door. And uh, turns out that it's Dustin looking for Mike, looking for anyone. I thought it was funny, too. Karen says that Nancy is at Allie's, even though the last time we, you know, the last name that we heard was Stacy's. So is that, an, is that like an error or a mistake on Karen's part that she wasn't paying full attention? Or did Nancy call with an update about where she was? Just I don't know, random thoughts I had. And the scene between Dustin and, and Ted at the door is really funny. It definitely makes me laugh every time. Our children don't live here anymore. Didn't you know that? So Dustin is on his way back, you know, not sure where he was going to go at that point. But that's when Steve's car pulls up and desperate and out of options. When Steve heads for the door with flowers, rehearsing an apology and sounding rather disgruntled about it. Dustin approaches him instead, grabs the flowers and starts getting into Steve's car. We have bigger problems than your love life, you know. And then that's when Dustin asks if Steve still has the bat. What bat? The one with the nails why and he says he'll explain on the way and steve rushes to catch up with him to the surprise of no one this is probably one of my favorite sequences in the entire show i (laughs) i know i've alluded to it probably said it outright a number of times i love this team up i love this moment i love how it begins I would not necessarily call Steve a pushover. I think Steve can be pretty flexible, (laughs) but Dustin just railroads Steve here. Like, this is what we're doing now. I think I've cut this out of every episode I've mentioned it in before, but I have cosplayed as Steve before. This is the first time that you see this costume. So I've looked at this scene a lot as reference, um, particularly trying to get pictures of the watch. So this this scene is I have a lot of affection for. And it's it's sort of the beginning of this, like, you know, Louis, I believe this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship kind of kind of moment. So I enjoy watching this. I look forward to it every time I watch the show. And it, it never fails to, to bring bring a smile to my face. I mean, it's evident immediately that Kiri and Matarazzo have a lot of great chemistry. They work really well together. I don't, I mean, and if that's a facade that they've created for like the marketing and it's not necessarily true, then I'm, I would be shocked. It doesn't feel manufactured. It feels entirely genuine. I can totally see why it became such a fan favorite. I'm far from the only person who loves this duo and will continue to see it in the next episode and beyond. But this is the beginning of, I think, one of the best storytelling and character decisions they've they made on this show to team these two up it's so great i love it hopper meanwhile continues to dig and climb through the through the wall but he loses his energy he just he sinks back down to the ground and when he lights up a cigarette the tendrils wrap around his leg they get around his shoulders knock him over and more and more coil around him basically burying him alive did i mention how much Hopper goes through the ringer. This is a really good example of an L cut. No pun intended, I swear. That's actually what it's called, where you get the audio from the next scene under the footage of the previous scene, where you hear Lucas's voice talking about L. how and that was the last we ever saw of her. She was just gone. And it's really great because it feels very ominous for like spooky storytelling. It's a little bit of a cheat, but it feels like it's insinuating that that's the last we're going to see of Hopper, that Hopper is just gone, which in a way he kind of is. That's exactly what's happening over at the buyers. They're like, oh no, he's gone. I just, I thought this was a, was a cool edit. And then we cut to the arcade where Lucas is actually finishing up essentially a season one recap for Max. And we have, we have our heavy meta moment in which Max says, she really liked it, but 
you know, she had a few issues. She thought it was a little derivative in parts and wish it had more originality, which <laughs> is exactly what many people said, and many critics especially said and still say about Stranger Things as a whole. What I find funny about that is that <laughs> that is something that people were saying about season one. I mean, knowing where the second and I would argue especially that third season goes, it's just f like, wow. And people had a problem with it after that first season. <laughs> uh, yeah, they really doubled down on that as the seasons progressed. But I also really like kind of respect the fact that their mentality is like, this is what we're doing. We're fully aware that this is a show that's full of pastiche. We're fully aware that this show is full of homage and that we are referencing things all over the place. We know. You act like we don't know. We know. And that's what I felt like this moment was. Like, it's it's heavily meta, yes, but I it doesn't feel so out of place. And I think it was it was a nice sort of subtle way of addressing kind of kind of that that critique. Yeah, we know. And then also sort of in character, like in context, to have Lucas be like, that wasn't the point. Like, I think that kind of speaks to the idea of like, yes, there is a lot of pastiche, but like there's a whole lot that isn't. Where the show is strongest is actually when it's being more original. But I think that's one of the things that season two gets a lot of a bad, gets gets kind of a bad rap for. And, and I think there's a lot more originality that's happening in this season than people tend to remember. People that I've talked to just in my everyday life don't necessarily remember a lot of what happens in this season. They haven't done many rewatches of the show. And if they have, it's mostly been of season one. And I think that this moment between Lucas and Max is kind of a, a really good summation of kind of where I stand about the whole thing. But also just completely in context, like outside of the, the meta-ness of it, it makes sense to me that, that Max doesn't buy any of it right away. I think it all, it, you know, it shows an a curious evolution from the automatic acceptance from a lot of the more wild aspects of the show that the kids themselves, you know, Lucas included, just accept in season one, especially at this time in life, just a year can make a pretty big difference. So I like that it's not only an evolution of like where they are in their youth, you know, moving closer to preteenhood, as it were, towards adolescence. They're a little older. And also that Max is a bit more of a pragmatist and she's a little more skeptical, especially based on all of what's been building to this, to have her be like, <laughs> okay. Like that that makes sense to me. Like I, I buy that. And also a curious parallel, it can be found here, between Max and Bob. They're both kind of going, okay, seriously, you expect me to just buy this without any explanation? Except in one case, it's covering up the truth. And in the other, it's a reveal of the truth. And Lucas tries to insist that he's telling the truth, which makes Max just steadily more angry. And first she's like, yeah, it's, it's funny. But then she starts to get mad because it's like, okay, no, like enough. And so she leaves the back room. She goes back out to the arcade and starts almost shouting sarcastically about the dangers of the lab in Eleven. And Lucas actually covers her mouth and his reaction you know, his fear seems to be what convinces her that some part of it all must be true. And I wondered if she maybe recognizes Lucas's fear, if maybe it mirrors her own. And then also, like, for all of her skepticism, there is the fact that, like, they are kids. But then she even doubles back and says, prove it. Just as Billy arrives, she grabs Lucas's hand and tells him not to follow her outside. But he does hover in the doorway close enough for Billy to see. So he has a name now. And when Billy speeds off and Lucas steps out after, Max looks behind 
anxiously. And yeah, it feels very foreboding. Nancy and Jonathan play the tape for Murray, who gets a drink. Nancy and Jonathan impatiently dig at him for answers, but he retorts by saying that nothing they have said is simple. He believes them. They need to convince other people, all of whom like their ignorance. And as he waters down his drink, they realize that that's what they need to do too. Water down the story. Something scary, but familiar. And the assholes who killed Barb? They'll go down. Curiously, that scene is followed directly by a scene back at the lab where a tech shows Owens the some, you know, some new research. Soils that they found in the fields and the, how the dirt is responding in the same way when one sample is exposed to heat. And to show these two scenes back to back continues to demonstrate a lot of what I talked about last episode, which is this is a yes and situation. They do need to be held accountable, but there is still some creepy shit going on. There is stuff that is unresolved. There's stuff that is evolving and changing and getting worse. And to just shut it down, it's a bad decision, you guys. So it almost seems like I'm just wondering if maybe it's like, you may also want to water down your intentions as well. Maybe. I am definitely not saying that the lab should not be held accountable. There are, because in addition to, to Barb and Will, there were also other people that died last year because of the Demogorgon. It's not just them. Like, remember, there's that bit where Callahan and Powell come to, to Hopper and are like, these other people are missing, which we are meant to believe that those people have also died. So yeah, I, I don't think that any of this is as cut and dry. It's only now that I'm really going, mm, yeah, maybe that's not what we want, at least not entirely. L prepares to go into the astral plane to talk to Terry, before which Becky asks L that if L can can reach Terry, she says, you know, tell tell her that I love her, and she she starts to say all these things that are really very sweet, but it's cut when L says, Stop talking. It's kind of cut as a joke, and I don't I don't love that. I I find that it's a little bit cruel. What Becky is saying feels very it, it makes complete sense. It's like in the scenes we've seen of Becky, it's like she's kind of cut herself off from thinking there's any way to communicate with her sister. And yet here might be this opportunity. Of course, it, I think any of us in that situation, like I don't have a sibling, but I've certainly dealt with my own sense of loss. And I think that if you were to find yourself, any of us were to find ourselves in this situation, of course, we'd be saying very similar things. And so to have it be that Elle is just like, stop talking. I don't know. I I don't I don't love that. And I don't love that in a way that isn't like, well, I'm supposed to not love it. I I don't like the way that that was handled. It's a small thing, but I found it it bothered me a little bit. But L goes in and gets the full story of what happened to Terry. It's a flashback sequence of memories that L seems to be experiencing and L is able to understand what actually happened to Terry. We see Eleven's birth, Brenner's presence in the delivery room waking up and Becky telling her that the baby died, Terry practicing safe cracking, preparing a gun, firing on a security guard when she enters the lab lobby, finding the rainbow room with the two little girls inside, but being dragged away, being tied down and forcefully given 450 volts of electroshock therapy. Woof. The sequence concludes as it's revved and sped up and starts looping, after which Elle sort of emerges from it, you know, panting, she's overwhelmed, and Becky hugs her awkwardly at first, hesitantly at first, but there. And I mean, damn. I mean, that's a lot, I think, for us as, a, like, ad, you know, adult viewers to handle, let alone 11. And it's another one of those, like, surprisingly 
dark things in this show, being stuck in that loop. Like Becky says in the scene earlier about she's not in any pain. Like, I don't know. I feel like that might be debatable. I mean, she doesn't appear to be in any pain, but if that's, if she's experiencing that loop over and over and over again, that is a kind of emotional and mental pain. And that's, that's really, really awful. But after that, Joyce, Bob, Mike, and Will drive through Hawkins trying to find the location. And Bob says, I told you it wasn't one-to-one. And Will closes his eyes and then says, turn right. And Joyce cuts the wheel hard right and barrels through the through a hayfield. Everyone's screaming until they stop right behind Hopper's truck. What's Jim doing here? Bob asks. Joyce instructs the boys to stay put. and But Bob comes along anyway. And Joyce breaks the tendrils covering Hopper's previously dug hole. Forcing her way in reminds, it reminded me of the uh, cutting into the wall with the axe last season. And she and Bob drop down into the tunnels. And Joyce tracks Hopper, finding his dropped cigarette. And Bob follows, just pelting her with questions the whole time. None of which she answers. I think both of which are totally reasonable. I think all of his questions make a lot of sense that he would be like, what? No, seriously, what's going on? But she's just too too focused on trying to find Hopper to, an- to answer. Above ground, though, Will and Mike wait. The now memories have gone dark. And then a bunch of trucks arrive from Hawkins' lab. And I love this twist here. We're building towards the end of the episode. And it starts off, you know, all those Hawkins electric vans pulling into the into the site, this field. We've seen those vans before. The last time was one of the best sequences in season one. And they were they were bad. They were bad news. It looks very ominous in this moment at first. But unlike before, the lab guys are kind of the cavalry here. Like they kind of come in and act sort of as this massive assist to our heroes because they need to fully rescue Hopper and... Joyce and Bob too, because honestly, if the if if the Hawkins lab hadn't shown up, I, how would Joyce and Bob and Hopper have gotten out of there? We don't know. We'll never know. But it would not have been easy, you know. I mean, we see Steve and the kids do it later, but still, I think at this point, it's a little. It's a lot of this is still a big question mark. They know a lot more about about all of this by the time they they break back in at the at the end of the the last episode in the finale. Plus, by them being there, they're there for what happens to Will in a minute, even though I guess technically it's their fault that it happens, like they cause it by doing the burning, but still it's it's uncovering more of the mystery at the same time. And that's really what they're there for. They're not, it continues to, to sort of detangle or, or grayify their role in everything. They're not just like the bad guys, capital B, capital G. Like it's just, it's not the same, but I'm getting it, but I'm getting ahead of myself. Joyce and Bob do find Hopper, and they cut him loose, and all three of them cut away the vines so he is set free. He stands, and Joyce clasps his his face in her hands, and uh, Bob and Hopper exchange an awkwardly casual, however genuinely pleasant greeting. And then that's just before the Hawkins lab techs in hazmat suits pop up behind them and usher them out. But Hopper picks up his hat before before they're, they're ushered out completely, which is probably an Indiana Jones reference. Also above ground again, Will and Mike watch more agents swarm the field as below the agent starts burning the quote graveyard and Will instantly keels over, shaking, seizing as the vines writhe below. And that final image, the rotating top-down shot as Will is essentially experiencing being burned alive. Mike just stands by in horror and the lab techs slowly move in. That is dark AF. 
I would argue that's one of the top darkest moments in the show. Again, this is another moment that I think people forget about. And I mean, I always expect that final shot, that final image to be like a little bit ridiculous just because it's so out there and because what Noah Schnapp had to do to convey that. But it's not. I mean, I don't know how other people feel, but it's always very sinister. It's always very haunting to me. So I guess job well done, guys. It's, it doesn't bother me in the same way that like Barb's death does, but it's very unpleasant. I think part of the reason it's deceptively dark is because it's not gory. You don't see any physical evidence of what he's experiencing, but it's, it's very dark. And as such, it definitely is one of the episodes that leaves you going, okay, so we're watching another one, right? Like, we don't, we don't just stop here, right? But that's where it ends. That's where this episode stops. Final thoughts. <laughs> this episode definitely contains one of my favorite moments, which is that first team up of Dustin and Steve. And on first watch, I loved getting some answers, finally, about what happened between Jonathan and Nancy and why they didn't hook up before when we went over that scene. I, I think that scene is really, really effective and really, really thorough and really dense in the best possible way. That has definitely proved to be one of the biggest surprises of, of this rewatch was that scene. One other thing that jumped out at me, I've alluded to it a couple times. I was like, we'll, we'll put a pin in that. I think this episode exemplifies the case that's been made <laughs> for it in terms of the, the specific time period serving as a character. But in, in this case, it also serves as really the, the atmosphere, but also the it serves the, the plot. It's like right now in any any set in any time, pretty much like I want to say probably like early 2000s on is about when I remember cell phones starting to be a thing. I mean, even pagers before that, any sort of mobile device that would allow you to communicate beyond something like a walkie-talkie, you don't have this episode. And this one specifically, these characters are all spread out all over the place. If all these kids had phones, or like I said, beepers or pagers, you know, which you could have done earlier in the decade, you know, maybe even the 90s, having it be here allows, it doesn't just mean like, oh, well, the conflict doesn't get resolved. It also means that you can have these scenes, you know, it allows the space and the pacing to get to see scenes like Lucas and Max in the arcade. If Lucas was aware that Dustin was looking for him, you might not have had that scene. If Dustin had been able to reach Lucas earlier, Lucas might have been like, okay, this takes priority. I'll, I'll talk to Max some other time. Or you would have had to come up with a like really probably unconvincing reason why he decides to leave Dustin in the lurch. <laughs> for that much longer. Same thing with Mike. Mike is with Will and Joyce and Bob. Like, he doesn't have a phone or a beeper or a pager on him, so he can't, he doesn't know that Dustin is like, code red, goddammit. There's no way for them to communicate. So, like I said, it opens that up for all of these scenes to happen. I guess what I'm getting at is that by having this, this context and this setting in this time period, it's not just, well, we can drag stuff out. They're allowing this lack of, of instant communication to provide them with space for character development, for plot development. And I know there are, there are fans, there are viewers that didn't like how slow some of this stuff took to get going, but what I would hope is that maybe in giving it some more rewatches, you might be able to see how, no, the plot isn't being like ramped up super fast, 
but you are getting these really great interactions, like this building of a relationship between Lucas and Max, which no, isn't romantic in its nature, but it does help them. They do spend time together, just the two of them. They're creating a relationship before you add in the romance. This is foundational. Again, what I'm getting at is that the context, the time period really helps sell that. So with that said, that's going to conclude our contemplation on chapter five, Dick Doug. As always, thank you for listening. And if you've got comments or questions or thoughts, join the conversation. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. Links are in the show notes. And if you've been enjoying this podcast, please consider leaving us a review. Coffee and Contemplation is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, plenty more anywhere podcasts are sold for free. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, over and out. Oh, we have, we have a siren. Oh, it's a long siren. She said, it's as if Dustin, like, brought a baby bear home. That's not what she said. Wow, I'm done. <laughs> okay. Might have been the fastest I've ever done that.